morning, everybody. My name is Jenny. I'm the interim lead pastor here at Emmanuel, and I'm very glad to be here today with you. Um, you may heard last week I had COVID, no longer have COVID, thanks be to God, but um, <laughs> have the lingering effects. So, um, Mike, I had to do communion at the last service because I had a coughing fit. So hopefully that won't happen. If you like to pray, pray for a sister. So I make it through this. Um, I uh, wanted to update you guys, as Beth talked about at the very beginning of the service, a few uh, things that happened at our members meeting that I just wanted to update the whole church on. Um, I get the privilege of talking about a new initiative that's going to happen at our church called the Jubilee Council. So I want to tell you all about that. So the Jubilee Council is a task force to help our church become a place where people of all races are included, celebrated, and empowered to shape the ethos and direction of Emmanuel so that we become a community that reflects the diverse cultural makeup of Atlanta and speaks to the racial injustices of our city. Our wonderful pastor, um, outreach and worship pastor, Micah, will be leading this effort, and he'll be doing so alongside an incredible woman named Bethany Wilkinson, who's the founder and lead facilitator of the Diversity Gap, which is a consulting practice for race-conscious leaders and teams. So this task force, the Jubilee Council, will meet once a month over the next six months, over which that time um, we'll craft our church's three- to five-year strategic plan for accomplishing this vision. This team will come together and unpack what our values for diversity, biblical justice, and jubilee mean for every program area of our church, um, including Sunday services, kids' ministry, education, spiritual formation, outreach, worship, all the things. So we're looking for a cross-section of people in different, um, people who serve in different ministries, people who are um, from different walks of life, to come and serve on this team with us. We'd love for you to come do that. The initial commitment is for six months. If you're like, I can't do a long-term thing, that's okay. This council will continue on in perpetuity, but the initial ask is just for these first six months for you to join with us. What I've learned as um, someone up here who asks for volunteers a lot is that people are like, oh, that opportunity is nice for someone else. And what I'm saying to you is if you have any sort of like burning in your spirit um, when I talk about these things, it's probably you. The Lord may be calling you into this. So we have an application process for this council, um, and that's not because we think some people are going to be better than others. It's more just an opportunity for us to make sure we have people from uh, a, a diversity of, of spaces come onto this team. So we would love for you to apply uh, for that. You can go to emmanuelatl.com jubilee, and that's where you can learn a little bit more, and you can also find the application there for joining us in this effort, which we're really, really excited about. If you have any questions about this initiative, you can email Micah at micah.manualatl.org. Uh, I'm excited about this sermon today. Um, it has, I think, a lot to do with what we're talking about with the Jubilee Council and I think the direction that God wants to take our church. Um, and so, uh, so let's join together and read the words of Jesus, starting in Luke chapter 14, verse 1, and then we're going to hop down to verse 7. This is my emotional support tea. Jesus says, or no, sorry, <clears throat> on one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor. 
in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. When you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return, and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I think um, setting up this social scene has been really uh, fun for me in in thinking about and um, sitting with Jesus in this moment that he's in with these Pharisees. Uh, So these people are the religious social elite. They're like the, the top of the top in their culture. And it's the Sabbath. And so they all go to this one Pharisee's house for like lunch after church, basically, all together. And these, these lunches are never like casual affairs. They're always like a big social moment. So literally there is like a ranking system in the midst of everyone as pertaining to where people sat at the table. And Jesus, who we know, if you followed him at any point in your life or read any of the Gospels, know that rankings don't matter to him. And so Jesus gets invited to this space where it's all about the social ranking, all about honor. And you can imagine, like, how funny it would be to see someone like Jesus sitting there just, like, waiting for his moment, you know? Like, I'm going to say something about this. Um, And so I find it very, very funny to think about him in that space, finding it so shallow and so silly, but ultimately really against the heart of God. And that's why he ends up having to address it. So in this moment where um, Jesus decides to teach, as we've seen over uh, the last few weeks in the Gospels, Jesus loves to take uh, weird, strange, hard moments to teach things. Um, And he does that. And he speaks really directly to this audience at hand, which is the Pharisees. We haven't seen that as much in the last few weeks. But here, that's, that's his audience. That's who he's in the midst of. And so he speaks directly to them. On the one hand, he offers this practical advice to them. Uh, Take the lower seat. Don't embarrass yourself if somebody more important comes along. Just go ahead and move yourself on down the rankings. Really great advice. Um, But he's also describing the kingdom of God like a dinner party, which is so different from the stuff we've been sitting with with him over the last few weeks. He's really been impressing upon us like the cost of discipleship and what it really means to follow him. He's been saying things like, let the dead bury their own dead, or... I've come to bring not peace, but division, or deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. These really intense statements about discipleship. And then here, Jesus gives party advice, which is very nice. So he's speaking the language in this moment of privileged people, he, all while challenging them with the reality of the good news and what it ought to mean for them and for people around them. So I think a text like this is particularly important for a church like us to hear. This survey that Beth mentioned we did a couple of months ago, all together as a church, uh, you may have participated in. One of the things that we learned is that we are um, 
a very Christian church, thanks be to God. Um, but I think that on the whole puts us like in this room with the Pharisees in terms of being the religious elite. One of the things we noticed in the survey results is that a huge number of people in this church pray every day or multiple times a week, believe the Bible is central to their understanding of the world, and hold Jesus as the most important thing in their life. What a blessing. But it does put us in this kind of like space, this ranking, this understanding, this intellectualism when it comes to our faith that can sometimes put people, other people on the outside of, of where we are as a church, what we feel like when people walk into this room, maybe if they're not Christian or if they're new to the faith. So the second thing I noticed that I think puts us in this room with the Pharisees is that we too on the whole are the social elite. We learned from the survey that majority of our church does not have to think about money, is not concerned about money. Finances are not on the top list of things that, um, that bring us anxiety. We are also a majority culture church. There are a lot of white people at our church. Um, and I, I, just am identifying facts about us as a church. And I also want to say that I am not saying this to discount anyone who does not fall into these categories. What it actually does to acknowledge these things is to account for your experience and your presence in this room. It does all of us a disservice not to recognize, like, who are we actually? When we come together, together as a body, like, what, do, what are we? Who are we? And so to say those things about us is really helpful. It helps us to identify who and where we are in stories like this. I think naming these things really allows us to honor the things that need to be honored um, and address the things that need to be addressed and also repent for things that need to be repented of. So as we like launch into this story, this very beginning story where Jesus sort of gives this really practical advice, um, what I love that he does here is that he's giving the Pharisees really a new way of thinking about themselves and about the world around them. So it's not like this like deep call to discipleship, like leave behind your whole family and come follow me. It's more of a like, hey, let's maybe change your worldview a little bit, and then you can start to actually hear me. Then you may actually be able to start doing some of the things that I'm calling you into. So in this moment, I think it's important to name that in the Mediterranean world at this time, the culture was centered around honor and shame. That was like the name of the game in their culture. I'm going to read you a little quote from a theologian, Mark Rawls, just to kind of set the scene for that. Honor and shame culture, this basically means that people's behavior was shaped by two things, the threat of being publicly shamed and the promise of being publicly honored. It is difficult to grasp the emotional power of one's reputation in the ancient world. Our individualistic culture has muted its force. To be shamed was a terrible setback. To be honored moved you forward in the eyes of everyone who mattered most. So when we talk about those seats at the table, and I like can joke about them at this point because of where we are in human history. It was not a joke. Those seats really mattered to them. They were everything to them. And so when Jesus says, shift your thinking about the, the, the ranking of these seats, it was a huge shift he was inviting them into. Jesus is offering them a new way of thinking about themselves for the sake of others. So, when we think about the Pharisees, I think it's really important, like I said, to kind of like put ourselves in the place of them. I think it's easy not to sometimes because we have the full picture of who Jesus is. We, ha we know all the stories, you know, and we really want to and desire to find ourselves in the place of the disciples, which is, I think, a very good and wonderful thing. Um, but we need to make sure when we come to passages like this that we see ourselves in these things. 
and these people in particular. I've found some of the, the most um, important things Jesus has ever like spoken to me has been through these uh, moments with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Um, so one of the things that I think about when I think about this room and these seats and what it meant for people to like take places of honor, how that compares for me is the like a world of achievement that you and I live in, that that's just what the West is built around. It's built around the next application for a job or for school or the next promotion or the next pay bump. It's like those were always living to the next like form of achievement. But the true thing about who Jesus is is that while we're all climbing ladders up to the top, we're going to pass by him climbing down ladders every time. That's just who he is. And he invites us to come down with him to not continue moving upward. When Jesus tells these men to take the lower seat at the table, he is addressing not just their desire for honor, but their entitlement to those seats, which is really threatening. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, Jesus says. A.K.A., there is no room for entitlement in the kingdom of God. And that's really hard for a person who is very entitled a lot of the time. As soon as we think we've earned a seat at the table, that means we haven't, what Jesus is saying. Entitlement is a tricky thing because it's inherently sinful, meaning that like we think that we own things when actually all of our things belong to God. But it also always leads to resentment because some, eventually you won't be as entitled as someone else. Can you imagine the hurt feelings that were going on in that room? <laughs> at the luncheon, uh, the dinner, or whatever was happening. Um, how many hurt feelings of people like shifting around chairs in that room depending on who showed up? That's a really difficult thing to think about. There's lots of, lots of hurt feelings and resentment in that room because of the entitlement that was essentially brought into the room. So Jesus is addressing a heart issue here for these people. He's saying, uh, look at the entitlement that lives within your heart. But also, Jesus is addressing a social issue here, as he always does. Both things matter to him. He's addressing the idea of privilege. Jesus came to redistribute the privilege of the elite through his disciples and the ethics of his kingdom. I'll say it again. Jesus came to redistribute the privilege of the elite through his disciples and the ethics of his kingdom. All this talk of Jesus um, from the very beginning, talking about this sort of like upside down kingdom uh, that rich people will not find a, a place for themselves in the kingdom of God and poor people will find themselves at the top and things like that that Jesus repeats over and over with different language. This is the kind of thing that he's saying. He's not saying that you can't be there. He's saying that there will be a redistrib redistribution of things, however, so that we can all be equal in the kingdom of God. Even like his mother, his teenage mother, when she found out she was pregnant with him, the song that came out of her mouth was that he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Privilege isn't a word that you and I ought to be scared of. It's one of those things that we hear, there's so many trigger words in, in our culture and our world right now. Um, and we, I'm telling you right now, like, I'm safe. You don't have to be scared of that word or of me using that word. Um, I think it's a really important word to talk about and kind of define together as a church, talk about what it actually means. I think it's really helpful, a really helpful word for understanding the gospel and what our place is in the kingdom of God. I just want to read a quote to you from um, an author named Dominique Dubois-Gilliard who says in his book, Subversive Witness, about privilege. He says, instead of denying that privilege exists, 
sidestepping the topic or feeling overwhelmed by its weight. The gospel demonstrates how we should deal with privilege. Scripture affirms that privilege is real and declares that while we have the option to exploit it for selfish gain or possibly benefit from it, we are called to acknowledge and faithfully steward it. We're called to leverage privilege to further the kingdom and love our neighbor. I think when a lot of us, the reason we get like kind of triggered is because we hear that word privilege and it, um, it sounds inherently negative to us. And then if we are a person who has, who as identified by someone else or ourselves as someone who has any amount of privilege, it feels like we're being told something negative about ourselves and that scares us or makes us put on the defensive. But in fact, having privilege can be a gift to the kingdom of God because we can then leverage it, use it for good in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you a story. So I used to be um, a poor college student, and it was just like in Occupy Wall Street days, you know? And, um, and I was very like, eat the rich. <laughs> that was like my posture towards the world. And, um, and then I remember one day uh, reading in the Gospels and reading through the crucifixion and the death of Jesus and getting to that part about Joseph of Arimathea. Do you guys remember that story? Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a very rich man and had been following the life of Jesus and came to love him. And when Jesus died, a lot of people who didn't have a lot of money were with him. And Joseph of Arimathea raised his hand and paid for Jesus' tomb. Jesus was laid in a tomb with dignity and honor because a rich person said, I'll pay for that. That is a really beautiful thing. That is leveraging your privilege for the kingdom of God. So when I talk about privilege, I'm not saying something negative about you or me or this church or whatever, but actually naming something really beautiful about who we are. All of us, I think, have some sort of privilege and how we can leverage that for the kingdom. I love the example that Gilead uses from the book of Acts. He uses a woman named Lydia as an example, and I just thought the blurb was so nice I wanted to read it to you rather than restate it. He talks about her. He says, she was a woman of privilege, a wealthy businesswoman who understood that she was blessed by God to be a blessing to others. Lydia recognized that God had not entrusted her with wealth to hoard her resources or to construct a buffer between her and the pain and suffering of her neighbors. Lydia saw her privilege as something emboldening her to participate in the kingdom through serving those in need. How we use what God has entrusted to us, has entrusted us with is a powerful testimony to those around us. And Lydia leveraged her privilege to demonstrate to the world who and whose she was. I think another reason we get scared when we use the word privilege is because we think people assume that means we've never suffered in our life. If I'm a privileged person in any capacity, then that means you think I don't, I don't have any pain or trauma or suffering. And number one, that's never true. We are all victims of pain and suffering and trauma. That's true of all of us but also that it's actually a great gift to the kingdom of God when you experience suffering and have privilege because then you have eyes to see other suffering people. It is really hard to see the suffering of others when you have not suffered deeply yourself. And so we can say thanks be to God for those of us who have things to leverage and can also see and witness the places in which they need to be leveraged because we have experienced pain. That's the kind of stuff that's like the redeeming life of the kingdom of God. So all of this leads us to the second part of this text where the Pharisees move um, from like party guests um, to party hosts 
beginning to sort of leverage their privilege for the sake of others. Let me take a sip. Church, I think we need to be honest about how we are privileged, not only so we can leverage those things for the kingdom of God, but so we also don't continue to perpetuate systems where others are victims of our privilege. Because that's the thing about privilege. I've heard it said, you know, it's not the shark in the water. It's not like the very obvious uh, dark thing, the evil that's like coming towards all of us. It's the water we swim in, actually it's a lot easier to just not even know that it's there, to be blinded by it in such a way that we, um, we can't actually see how it's affecting the world around us. Let me give you an example of this. This is also um, it's from the Bible. It's um, one of the stories I learned, I remember reading about in seminary, and it's sort of changing the way that I thought about God and the life of the church. This is from 1 Corinthians 11. So Paul's writing this letter uh, to the church in Corinth because they're having a very hard time you know anything about it. Um, they're not doing a great job, but he still loves them and believes that they can do well. And so he writes them this letter of encouragement. And he starts to um, explain a situation in which they were like perpetuating uh, as a house church. So churches back then weren't really like this. They didn't gather in buildings together uh, to come and worship God. They did it in people's homes. And people's homes back then in this part of the world were like, the, at least for people who had the large homes, were really big and kind of like open space. So people could really come off the street and sort of like gather in homes. It made church really easy to do within homes. So these people would gather together for church, and they would do the Lord's Supper together. But for them, it's not like us where we have like a styrofoam snack. It was like a dinner it was like a real feast that they had every time they shared the Lord's Supper. They had dinner, and they had lots of wine, and it was a very wonderful, joyous time. So they would be coming to church together to have these dinners, to, to have the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper together, have a wonderful time. But what was happening is that these people who were kind of on the upper echelons of society, who were kind of like socially at the top, would get off work basically earlier than uh, the people who are on the lower uh, rungs of society for whatever reason, economically, socially, whatever. And these people would come to the dinner first, and they would eat all the food and get drunk on all the wine. I kid you not. Go read it for yourself. They would come, and they would eat all of this food and drink all of this wine. And by the time the people who were sort of on, like, the, the lower status in, in this area would come to this dinner, come to church for the Lord's Supper, there was no food left for them. These people who were already struggling to eat, already struggling to have enough, they would come to the Lord's Supper and there would be none for them. And what Paul is pointing out in this moment in scripture is he is saying, you are blind to how your privilege is affecting the people around you. This act of God that ought to be challenging social inequalities is actually being replicated by this church and Paul is saying, this must stop. You must recognize how your privilege is affecting the people around you. And that is privilege at its worst, friends. Because you can imagine the people who are getting to that dinner early and eating all the food and maybe even like slurring drunkenly afterwards saying things like, well, they should have gotten here earlier. Or they should have had a different job. Or maybe they should have worked harder earlier on in their life so that their life would be different now and they could be like me and they could get here early and eat all the food, you know? Any number of those things. 
Esau Macaulay, who's an Anglican theologian, um, in his book, Reading While Black, he says that Jesus came to liberate our souls and our bodies. And I can think of no better way of describing the gospel because what Jesus did is not just come for our personal salvation. He, of course, did that. You can read all over the Bible and see that that is true. But he also came to save the whole world and all the systems within it. Some of us feel really anxious when we talk about systemic problems. The truth is we all have some systemic problems that we care about. Some make us more nervous than others, and usually that is because of cultural, political discourse. But we all care. We all believe that Jesus is coming back to redeem the systems of our world. So when he says that Jesus came to liberate our souls and our bodies, he's talking about all that it means to be a person with a body in the world, especially if your body is one that is not cared for as much as other people's, that's looked down upon or has a, a system that is sort of built against it. There are a lot of fears for a lot of people in the world right now around churches who talk about things like privilege. You may even be feeling that right now, me standing up here talking about that, saying that word over and over again, maybe like pricking something in your spirit. And there's this real fear of people, like you're going to lose the gospel for this like social movement that's happening. So I want to reassure you that this is for us as a church, not losing the gospel, but stepping into a piece of it that we as a church, frankly, have, have neglected for a really long time. We will always talk about how Jesus saves us and works for us personally and that we ought to be like spiritually formed people, all of those things. But we also have to now like bring into our rhetoric, our discourse, that Jesus really does want to save our systems. And he wants to use us as people within those places to bring the kingdom of God to earth. So what we're attempting to do is understand as part of the gospel work and understanding the social complexity of the world in which we live. I truly believe Jesus is calling us to that in this passage. When he talks about inviting people who can't repay you uh, to dinner, people outside of your normal social circle, outside of your inner circle, you know what I mean? When he says, invite those people in, what he is doing is saying, hey, maybe take a second and look at the world around you and look at maybe the way the system is set up for other people not to thrive and ask yourself how you can use your position in society to affect their position. So of course he's asking us to step into these spaces and ask these questions about how our systems are affecting our lives and other people's lives and how the kingdom is calling us into those spaces. Uh, this book, All Are Welcome, toward a multi-everything church I've been reading uh, really slowly because it's that good. Um, and there's one essay within it that I keep uh, getting stuck on, and it's by a guy named uh, Dr. Jarvis Williams, and it's incredible, and it's about reconciliation and how the Bible calls us to reconciliation um, in, all, in all ways, uh, reconciliation with God personally, it's why we do confession every Sunday, um, and then reconciliation with each other as well. And this is what Dr. Williams says, um, in one of the things he says in his article, or in his essay, we Christians need to grow on a regular basis in our understanding of the complexity of race, race relations, and the ways in which race still socially privileges and marginalizes different races in the church, in Christian institutions, and in society. What Jesus is inviting us into in this moment in scripture is opening up our inner circle, in particular to those who live outside of the waters of our own privilege. 
Because when we begin to see all the small ways that our privilege has blinded us to the needs of people around us, um, to the actual human beings around us, um, our lives begin to open up to the kingdom of God and those within it. We begin to be reconciled to those for whom we have not been in relationship with. Did you know you don't actually have to have a beef with someone to be reconciled to them? When you are sort of like intentionally not in relationship with someone, even if you think they're great, um, there's likely some sort of reconciliation that needs to happen. That's what Jesus is calling us into here, is, is inviting us into saying like, where have I just assumed a separateness that has affected and, and uh, unreconciled me to someone else? There ought to be a reconciliation of those things. Those we have forgotten those we thought we had nothing in common with, and so the space felt natural. Jesus is calling us to identify those spaces. So much I think of our resistance to a multi-everything church as our personal preferences. Dr. Williams says this, we must esteem others to be more important than ourselves by putting the needs of others in the Christian community ahead of personal preferences when our personal preferences have nothing to do with the gospel. This requires a flexibility for Christians, especially Christians from the majority culture, a willingness to sacrifice some preferences when possible, to achieve reconciliation in an increasingly ethnically and racially diverse world. Negotiating preferences is hard for many of us, especially when those preferences are also attached to particular ethnic or racial culture. With that racial or ethnic culture comes a certain theological culture with which we identify. What he is saying is that a lot of times, especially us in majority culture, we assume that our personal preferences are theological preferences. When actually, God is calling us into a different way of thinking about him, different way of worshiping him, a different way of being together with him. There was a comment on the survey about uh, sort of like not loving to be told how to worship in the service and that when we invite people to worship in specific or different ways, that that feels like an infringement. Um, and the truth is, is like it, it is partially. Um, it's an invitation for all of us to sort of move together towards something rather than come in to have a curated experience. For us to say, like, hey, this is what it looks like for us to move as a church towards being more open, um, towards doing church in this specific kind of way, of um, trying out something new. It's not to, like, make you feel bad as a person, but to invite us into something that maybe isn't a majority thing. Maybe it's something that can open us up to a new way of thinking about church, a new way of being together. I think if we really let the Spirit of God search us and know us, so many of us would find that our personal preferences, especially when it comes to church, come from our privilege. When it comes to race and ethnicity, when it comes to what we think about women, when it comes to making space for people with disabilities, the list goes on. So here's, here's what I'll say to, to just conclude here. One of the reasons Luke's gospel is very special is that he, more than any other gospel writer, talks about what scholars call table fellowship. Jesus ate a lot in Luke's gospel. Um, every page you can find somewhere where Jesus is having a meal with people. And the, the like beautiful personal thing I think about this is Luke as a follower of Jesus, someone who experienced him. I think, you know, I can't imagine what it was like to follow Jesus around and hear him say all these very lofty and hard things. Um, but I can't imagine that when they got to the table, it all made sense. 
like when Jesus uh, started serving a meal to his brothers and sisters, that um, so many of the things that he said started to have like a human reality to it. And so for Luke, that was so key, especially these things, um, these hard teachings of Jesus, that when they happened around meals, they just became sort of human. They became real. And I, I love that because what it says to us is that we can't like stay in the lofty headspace of these things. At some point, we actually have to like let the gospel change the way we live our lives and all the like nooks and crannies of it, including and maybe even especially what happens around our dinner tables. But like that space is a beautiful space to invite people in. I heard about this um, old uh, ancient tradition of some countries in Europe where on Christmas Day when they would set the table for their big Christmas meal, they would always leave a seat open um, just in case someone needed to come join them for their family meal because that's like Jesus needed a, a, a space at the table when he was born and there wasn't any. And so it was like a time to remember that we need to open our spaces. This is the same thing here. How have I opened up my life to people who are not like me? How have I invited people in that, that maybe I don't have as much in common with as, I, as my, my usual friends, my usual inner circle? Jesus is asking us to be able to use our privilege to create seats for people to come sit around the table with us, to invite them into our lives in these intimate ways. I think one of the beautiful things about this is that we're going to start doing this with our second Sunday dinners. It's a kind of nerve-wracking experience, you know? Like, you sign up to have your home open to have dinner with people, and, like, any one of us can sign up, you know? Come into your home, eat dinner with you. But what a beautiful risk. Those are, like, gospel risks, you know? To, like, open up this intimate space in your home for other people who maybe you wouldn't uh, talk to on a Sunday morning or, like, find yourself being best friends with. Creating a space for them and actually moving towards reconciliation. That's what we're doing in those spaces, is we're saying the gospel makes us all friends. Let's start living like it. Amen? Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.